بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وبعد اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير الحمد لله This is lesson 2 in module 8 in our study of the Fard'ain knowledge and we've been covering financial transactions. Now, I want to clarify something here before we move forward, and that is this title should get a minor correction. I should go back and erase the word financial and just leave it as transactions because transactions don't just involve money or goods it can involve other sorts of transactions but we'll cover that inshallah tonight and in the subsequent classes but most of this does concern matters of money so financial transactions is also sound now last week we talked about some of the fundamentals with regards to mu'amalat remember we said that the entire body of islamic law sharia is broken down into three components. Who remembers what the first component of Sharia is? All of Islamic law. Ibadat. So acts of ritual worship. Tahara, Salat, Siyam, and so on. These are known as the Ibadat. And every Muslim has to know their father Ibadat. Ritual worship. What's the next component of Islamic law? Mu'amalat, right? So financial transactions, mu'amalat maliya, right? Or ahwal shakhsiya, marriage law, divorce, inheritance, land use, things like this. And what's the third component? Who said that? I heard that somewhere. Jinayat. Jinayat meaning criminal law. Criminal law. And that concerns judges, testimony, prescribed punishments, discretionary punishments, so hudud and ta'zirat, uh, things like this. Now, of these three, which one are we as Muslims not obligated to know? Personally speaking, the third one, the third one, because those matters uh, are not obligatory for us to know in our daily life. We're not called these, right? We're not carrying out these, uh, these penalties in Islamic courts, so they're not really something that we have to know. That is the, the purview of scholars and qudat, right? Last week we also set some foundations and we talked about how the default of transactions is permissibility. Al-aslu fil mu'amalat al-ibaha. Which means that the default is we are allowed to buy and sell and trade and buying and selling and trading, commerce, it's all permissible except for the very specific things that are prohibited in the Qur'an and the Sunnah 
and the things that came later which sufficiently resemble those things, which we'll be getting into in the next week or two. So otherwise, the default is buying and selling is, are permissible. Another point that we made is that when we learn muamalat, interactions, transactions, one of the purposes behind that, the laws of transactions, is to maximize human welfare, to maximize what is best for us in this life, to prevent injustice from arising between Muslims and others, and to prevent conflict between people. Think about people you may know, whether they're from your family or people, acquaintances, people who are in conflict with other human beings. And ask yourself, why are they in conflict? Most of the time, people are in conflict over two things. They're in conflict over money matters, or they're in conflict over interpersonal relationships, right? So by knowing the Islamic laws of buying and selling, when we transact among ourselves properly, we help prevent conflict. It's because when these things are not observed and there are differences and there comes conflict and fighting, a lot of this can be solved just by transacting properly. So we learn these basics. Another point I want to emphasize is that Islam is a package deal, meaning Islam is not just about praying, it's not just about fasting and reading Quran and personal private ibadat. The good Muslim is not the one who's a very strict namazi, who prays all his five prayers in the masjid, but he cheats people in his business. That is not the good Muslim. Likewise, the good Muslim is not the one who feels enlightened and says, I don't cheat people, I treat them very well, but yeah, I don't really pray. They think they're enlightened because they're good to people, even though they neglect the haqq of Allah. The Muslim, the proper Muslim, observes the haqq of Allah, the right of Allah, and the huquq al-ibad, the rights of Allah's servants. So by learning transaction law, we are better able, inshallah, to preserve the rights of other people. So we don't want to have this fragmented understanding of Islam, where Islam is confined to the masjid, is confined to our home. It is only in the form of salat and personal devotions, and it has no bearing on how we interact with other people, particularly in the domain of buying and selling, which we're focusing on in this module. So Islam is the whole thing, the whole package. And I know, we've all experienced that, that type of person. They seem pious outwardly in these external ritual actions, but when it comes to business dealings, you just can't trust them because they cheat people. But they think that they're pious. Piety is not just in one domain. It is giving Allah his haqq and giving the huquq to Allah's servants. And that's why we learn transactional law. So having mentioned that as an overview, we'll do a bit of review. A lot of this we mentioned in the previous class.
We won't go through all of the minute details. We'll just do an overview of the basics and the conditions of a valid sale. So if we're starting with mu'amalat, uh, we will look primarily at buying and selling because every single one of us buys and sells. We need to know the basic components, the conditions for a valid transaction. And at the top of the list is mutual consent. Allah Ta'ala mentions that explicitly in the Qur'an, إِلَّا أَن تَكُونَ تِجَارَةٌ عَن تَرَادٍ What is prohibited are these other forms, except tijara, commerce, that is based on mutual consent. The buyer is content, is content, the seller is content, they both agree to the transaction, no one is coerced and pressured into that. If there's any coercion, it's not a valid transaction. So it has to be with our mutual consent. Likewise, the person selling the object has to either own the object or they are representing the owner legitimately, right? So the owner of the object hires them as a wakil to represent them selling it on their behalf uh, for a fixed price or other details. That person is selling an object it doesn't belong to them, but it's with the permission of the owner. So that's basic. Most people already understand this. Uh, likewise, the item has to be known. What is it exactly? What is its type and how much does it cost? Who is willing to buy what is in my pocket? If you raise your hand and say you agree to buy it, I will tell you that's an invalid transaction because it's only going to be valid when you know what is in my pocket and what is its type and its cost. If I say, I will sell you what's in my pocket, I will sell you this, uh, this baseball card in my pocket. It's a, it's a Babe Ruth baseball card. And you say, okay, you got to know the price. I have to tell you the price. If you don't know the price, and I just say, give me whatever you want to give me. Uh, you need to determine the price, the type, the cost, and so on. Basic stuff. Likewise, to sell something, for it to be valid, it has to be something that can be handed over. Meaning there has to be some, some measure of control. And the example we gave last week was, a person has, let's say, 100 acres. And they, sell, they say to the person, I will sell you the deer, the wild deer that are on my property. Would that be a valid transaction? No. The fuqaha say it wouldn't be valid because although you own the land and you have the right of use for the things on that land, meaning the animals, you don't have control over those animals. You don't know how many they are. They're in and out of your property. You don't have control over them. If you were to trap them or have them in a contained area and have control, obviously, then you could sell them at a set price per head. That's obviously a valid transaction because they're yours and you have control over them. Uh, the thing has to be halal too, right? And it's something that doesn't really need to be said, but... I guess, we, I guess we have to say it, that if something is haram to consume, 
it is also haram to sell. If it is haram to consume and it's haram to sell, it's also haram to facilitate that sale. Now, we see that this is an issue uh, within many communities. And inshallah, as we go further, we'll talk a little bit more when we get to the specific prohibited transactions. We'll talk more about that, inshallah. Um, likewise, there has to be offer and acceptance. The same terms used in marriage are used here. Ijab wa qabul. So it's, here it's not proposal. <laughs> it's offer and an acceptance. So a simple form would be like, uh, let's say you have, I'm just looking here at the table. I see a nice warm hat on the table. And you say to me, I will sell you this warm hat for $1. And I say to you, that's a really good deal. I accept the offer. Here's the dollar. That is a valid transaction, assuming you own that. Do you own that? Okay. Right? Assuming it's owned by him. I offered, he accepted. Or he could say to me, hey, I have this nice hat. I'll sell it to you for a dollar. And I say, okay, I accept that. Or, hey, I'd like to buy that hat. Would you sell it to me? He says, okay. So whoever is proposing, whoever is accepting or offering, it's fine. That's the two key components of the sale, ijab wa qabul, right? Now, what about going to the grocery store? You're down the aisle, you're picking up all these items, and then you go to the self-checkout, you put your card through the thing, you're checking it out yourself. You're not talking to a single soul. You put your card in, you take your receipt, and you go out the store. Is that a valid transaction? Okay, but where's the proposal? Where's the acceptance? Where's the offer and acceptance between the two parties? The scanning machine? The price tag? But the price tag doesn't speak. The price tag didn't say, hey, but it, it's implied, right, it's implied, uh, sort of, right? Let's, let's back this up a little bit. There's a reason why I'm doing this. Okay, um, we'll, we'll use your hat as the example again. Example one, Maksa says, I have this hat for a dollar, would you like to buy it? I'll sell it to you for a dollar. I say, I accept your offer. Here's one dollar. Is that explicit? That's explicit. What if he says, you can have this hat for a dollar. And I say, great. Is there an offer and acceptance there? There is. But is it explicit? It's not explicit. So the offer and acceptance can be either explicit or implied or understood. That's fine. It's understood between our conversation, this verbal expression from both sides, that party A is offering and party B is accepting. Whether it's the explicit statement, I will sell this to you, and the person says, I will buy it, or if it's some other expression that communicates that. Now, 
the grocery store example is not implied in a verbal sense because no one offered it to you verbally either through a clear statement or an implied statement right an implied offer it's a price tag and you don't even talk to anybody so what's going on there is called a physical exchange sale it's not an explicit ijab wa qubul offer and acceptance but it's called mu'atat which is a physical exchange sale where the this the mu'atat as it says here in the slide is giving the seller the price meaning the cost of the item and taking the item without speaking right so let's say that maqsad going back to the hat he has a shop he sets up right here after Juma, and he sells these nice hats and he has a bunch of them and they have price tags on them it says one dollar each and i come up to him i just say salam alaikum i hand him a dollar and he hands me the hat there was no verbal offer there was no verbal acceptance but it's a valid transaction because I gave him the cost of the item without speaking but it's customary and there is a mutual agreement that's implied in the transaction like this is a technical way of explaining something that's very basic to our experience you go shopping the price tag tells you how much it costs if you didn't want it you would put it back on the shelf so by taking the item with the price tags on it and going to the checkout and giving your money right that's your acceptance and the store made the offer implicitly by putting the price tag there as long as that's understood customarily that there's a taradi there's a mutual agreement that this is how you transact it's absolutely fine so the vast majority of our buying and selling is this form of what we call physical exchange sale so you put a dollar into a vending machine for a coke the shirt has a price tag on it and you hand the cost to the checkout person whatever they call them they didn't give you the offer you didn't express acceptance but the whole process communicates that anyway so that's what we call it but we mention it separately from the explicit offer and acceptance all right now so far this is what we've already learned from last week uh, other things that we covered i want to review a little bit um, the item of sale also has to be known the item has to be in view or observable directly or virtually so if someone sends you a picture of an item and it's the same item that you're buying from them that they bring to you that's fine and there are some differences of opinion among the fuqaha about this question of observability right in the maliki school there's a bit of leeway in that you are allowed in the maliki school to sell something by description as long as there's awareness there's knowledge about the item and there's con there's mutual consent so i can tell you in the maliki school this would be valid for me to tell you uh, 
I have, let me think of something. I have a nice pair of brand new unused Air Jordans in a shoebox at home. Have you seen them? No, you haven't seen them. I don't have a picture either. And you could say, okay, you trust me. Okay, how much? I say, well, I don't know, $500. I don't know how much Jordans cost. You give me the 500, then I go and pick them up, bring them to you. That, that would be allowed as a sale by description, assuming there's trust. Uh, another type is similar. They call it sale by estimation. So that would be like saying, uh, let's say there's a farmer and he has a bunch of sheep. And you go to the farmer and say, I will buy your entire flock of sheep at $100 per sheep. Have you seen the sheep? Not yet. He can accept that offer, but when it comes time to the actual handing over, what does he have to do? He has to go round the sheep up. And because you said $100 per sheep, you have a rough estimate in your mind of how many sheep he has. If the total number turns out to be 50 and you pay $5,000, that's a valid transaction. It's not paying for something that's unknown because if he counts 40 sheep, you pay 4,000. If he has four sheep, you pay 400. So the quantity becomes known at the time of counting. It will be different if you said to a farmer, uh, you don't know how many sheep he has. And you say, I'll give you $1,000 for uh, every head of sheep you give me, every head of sheep you have. You are paying for something of an unknown quantity that's not divisible. So what if he brings you two sheep and that's all he has? You just got ripped off. You just lost a lot of money. So you need to know the quantity. Even if you don't see it, there's still this specification going on. Anyhow, this is not immediately relevant to most people. So we just mention it like this in passing. Yeah, yeah, it comes into play at a point. We're going to talk about that a little bit here coming up. Uh, another thing we talked about last week, and this is where we get to the exceptions and we bring the new material, the, the thing that is being sold has to exist. Mm, and there's some, there are some exceptions to this. And there are some differences of opinion about the details among fuqaha, but generally it's said that the item has to exist. You cannot sell something that does not exist or something that uh, may cease to exist. So they say, for example, it would be impermissible to, for a person to say, I'll sell you the calf inside that cow's belly because you're not sure of the type. It's not clear yet, right? It doesn't yet exist in the sense that there's a concreteness to it in identifying it. Or I'll sell you the milk and that cow's udder. Now this one is where there's some differences because let's say you work on a farm, you work with cows all the time, and you have a pretty good idea of how much milk would come out of a cow of that type 
and of that size and of that diet and of that season you're very experienced with cows and you look at it and you have a rough estimate in your mind how much milk would come out of that cow if you have past experience like that you could buy the milk and the udder even though it's not 100% clear what the total amount would be for a set price so there's some uh, leeway here among the schools but you cannot say I'll sell you the cow the calf born from this cow next year so let's imagine there's a cow a heifer she's not pregnant but she's going to be pregnant and the person says this cow will be pregnant and I will sell you the calf that is born from this this cow next year at this price pay me now that would be invalid because that thing does not yet exist right or I'll sell you all the apples this is winter and I'll sell you all the apples that will grow on this tree next season because you can't specify the quantity you don't even know if it's gonna have apples something may happen to the tree and you don't get any good apples so you can't sell something that doesn't exist now in modern economies especially in places where there's a strong manufacturing base there are two important exceptions to this that although they are technically selling something that doesn't yet exist they are permissible transactions because they are absolutely required for economies to run and these are legitimate transactions and they have a basis within the sharia going back to the time of the prophet and these are the two transactions one is called bay'a salam or forward sales and the other is called istisna now bay'a salam is basically a contract for deferred delivery so you pay in advance for a specific set of goods and the, 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 the seller, the one who's taking your money, agrees to supply you with those things at a, an agreed-upon date. Let's say you work in the computer industry, you know, building stuff, and you say, I need to buy some chips, and those chips have to be made. I need a certain quantity. They're not yet made, but because of the nature of these these manufacturers I need to put an order in in advance so that I can wait and then get them delivered in the future this is called Bayr Salam technically you are paying for something that doesn't yet exist right if the quantity and the quality is stipulated in the contract and they receive the money and they make those things and deliver them at that pre-agreed date although at the moment of the transaction doesn't exist this would be a permissible kind of sale and this is needed for uh, large-scale economies with manufacturing bases istisna is similar it's the only difference is that it's the sale of a manufactured object with partial payments at different stages of production so you know imagine a thing an item that consists of multiple parts and 
you're selling the object with partial payments at different stages until the whole thing is complete. So technically, you know, that in product is what you are buying, but it doesn't yet exist because it's being built. So you're paying the person who's getting this product, getting this thing and putting it together. So those would be exceptions. And as I said last week, when it comes to the particular questions about a person's daily, their own livelihood and transactions, if they have a question about what is permissible or not, then you know, they should word the question well and can look into it. But this is just a broad overview of different types of sales. Now tonight, what we want to cover from now until the end is just a, an overview, a panoramic view of basic transactions that are halal and basic transactions that are haram. After that, we look at the specific details of haram transactions. Because we said the default is permissibility. So once the permissibility is established, we just need to look at the particular things that are haram and the forms they take and certain details that may come in our life. Now, there are certain transactions that are not always buying and selling that people are sometimes confused about. Are they halal or are they haram? And we want to clarify those that are halal and those that are haram in the details concerning them. So permissible transactions, not all of them are buying and selling. Things like lending an item. I will loan you this nice warm hat. Do we exchange money? No. But it is still a transaction, right? So that's halal. I lend it to you. And there's some details about what happens if it gets damaged and the normal damage that is expected to happen from normal use versus negligent damage and who's responsible. But lending is permissible. Another thing that's permissible is what we call as-is sales. So I have a bunch of objects. Think of a garage sale, you know. The garage sale, you're selling things that you used, right? There's different levels of wear and tear on those items. So you're selling them at the, at the garage sale. People come, you have your offer. You're not going to have them purchase the thing from your garage sale and then bring it back and say, well, I need to talk with customer service. I want to get an, another one of these because I don't like it. You sell it as is, right? If you don't like it, then don't buy it. That's permissible, provided the defects are known. Known by who? That's the question. The buyer, not just the seller, right? The, but the seller, of course, needs to know what the defects are, but it's not enough to just tell the potential buyer to go inspect it yourself. I can't sell an object as is and say, yeah, if you want it, it is as is. Just look at it yourself. Look at it yourself. I'm looking at you for a reason because you asked a question relative to this. Uh, you don't say to them, look at it yourself, and if you like it, you can buy it. No. You actually, as the seller, have to go out of your way to detail the defects in the item. Right? So, 
I bought this suitcase when I was in Medina to get books, an extra suitcase. And the person's opening it and showing everything. And we get back to the room and see there's a tear. Take it back. Apparently he didn't know it. We got a new one. Now, that suitcase that we took back, is he going to sell it now? Maybe. Can he sell it? Yes. It has a defect. He can sell it. What does he have to do, though? He has to show the customer the actual defect. He can't just say, yeah, someone, someone brought this back, but, you know, take a look at it, and, you know, if you like it, we'll sell it for this price. No, he has to actually open it up and go to the defect that we discovered and show them. If they're happy to buy it with that defect, sure, why not? It's permissible, as his sales are okay, but the seller has to go above and beyond and not just leave it to the potential buyer to discover those defects. This, this is the sticking point. It's not enough to just say, yeah, it's used and yeah, it's got some damage. No, you need to explain what the damage is. Because maybe the potential buyer sees damage here, but underneath there's far greater damage you're not disclosing. They buy it and you're gone. What are they going to do? Now they discover damage they didn't see before because you didn't disclose it. So you have to disclose it. Uh, another thing that's permissible is posting bail. That's a financial transaction, isn't it? That's permissible. Uh, we won't talk about that too much. Um, the next one is uh, hawala. Where is... Uh, I'm, I, I'm looking at you. Why am I looking at you? You're not sure? Because hawala is a, a tried and true financial uh, a means of transferring money to uh, your part of the world, is it not? It is. Um, I actually used it once uh, for a project. It's interesting. But that's not the hawala we're talking about here. Well, it is, but not that particular form, the way it looks. Hawala is basically transfer of debt. Right? So let's say Khalid owes $50 to Amr. Amr, however, owes $50 to Zaid. Khalid goes and gets $50. He's ready to, he's going to pay the debt back. Can Amr tell Khalid, don't worry about it, just I want you to give that $50 to Zaid. That is a transfer, the debt transfer. Is that permissible? Yes, it is a transaction of money. It is permissible with one condition. And that condition is that Khalid and Zaid agree to work with each other. Let's say Khalid and Zaid don't get along, or they don't want to do that, then they don't have to. He can say, no, I insist. I borrowed the money from you, not from Zaid. So I'm not going to give him any money. I'll give it to you, and you have to take that money and give it to him. You have to go out of your way. That's not my job. But if he says, hey, yeah, I'm going to meet Zaid anyway, tomorrow, I'll give him the $50 instead. So my 50, the $50 I had as a debt to give to Amr, 
and Amr was supposed to give it to Zayd, I'll just give it to Zayd. I'll cut out the middleman. That's permissible as long as the two agree to work with each other like this. Yeah, everybody has to agree. Everyone has to agree here. There has to be, again, this taradin, this, this mutual consent to this kind of transaction. It is a financial transaction, not one of buying and selling, but it is paying back uh, borrowed money. Debt transfer. Other permissible transactions, uh, loaning an item for common use. Right? Now, there's a distinction between, number one, which is lending an item and loan of an item for common use. And the difference is uh, lending an item could be something of really high value. I could loan you my car, right? But loaning an item for common use is basically the lowest form of sadaqah. I give you, I, I loan to you a cooking pot. I loan to you a set of spoons because you have a lot of guests coming over and you don't have enough silverware. I loan you my mixing bowl so you can make a cake for your daughter's graduation party. These are lending items, small items, for common use. And this is mentioned in Surah Ma'un. Allah describes some of the qualities of disbelievers and says, and He says about them, وَيَمْنَعُونَ الْمَاعُونَ They refuse small acts of charitable kindness, loaning flour, giving a little bit of sugar, loaning this pot and pan, these kinds of things. So, ariya or loaning common items is a transaction and it is permissible the borrower, the borrower is responsible for that item until it's returned. And the fuqaha say that if the item breaks due to normal use, then it's not the responsibility of the borrower, borrower to uh, compensate the one who loaned the item. So, example, mm, let's say you loaned a pot and some some of these big wooden spoons for stirring and the person is stirring something normally and the wooden spoon breaks they didn't throw it against the wall they didn't break it over their leg it just broke common use regular use it happens are they responsible for buying another spoon or compensating you for that broken spoon no because it's common use but what if they had that wooden spoon that they <laughs> borrowed from you and their cake didn't turn out too nice and they got mad and they threw the wooden spoon and it broke well obviously that's not common use that person would be responsible for compensating for that damage right buying a new spoon giving them the money whatever um, other transactions that are permissible hiba and sadaqa so gifts and charity Charity is a transaction because it's going from person A to person B, right? So that's a transaction that's permissible and praiseworthy. Hiba, hadaya, gifts are permissible, going from person A to person B. However, there's details here because let's say you have four children. How do you give a gift to one child 
and not give gifts to the other three, right? Okay, maybe it's their birthday, and they all have birthdays at different times of the year. That's, if you do that kind of thing, that's the mafhum, that's, that's understood. But let's say out of the blue, you decide, I'm going to come home with a gift just for this one child, because I can't say it, but they're my favorite, right? You can't do that. Now, this means that ideally you're giving equal gifts to each of the children. But let's say out of your four children, one of them has recently graduated, they haven't found a job, and they kind of they moved back in. They're, you know, they're kind of they're struggling a little bit. And the other three siblings say, you know, go ahead and give them a gift. We're fine. We don't need a gift. You can give to that one and not to the others because they accept it. It's with their consent. That's fine. Um, otherwise, you need to be mindful of equality in gift giving between children, right? Unless they expressly are okay with you giving this gift at this time and them not receiving something, that's fine. So that would be birthdays, for instance, or other gift giving scenarios. Now for... Uh, Gifts for officials, the fuqaha mentioned that judges and governors and zakat collectors, when they were a thing, they are not allowed to accept gifts unless they are outside of the area where they normally operate. Why do you think that's prohibited? Exactly. How do you distinguish between bribery and gift giving? After all, even still today, most of what they call bribery, or most of what is bribery, no, they don't call it bribery. They say, give me, give me a small gift. You know, someone I know told me they were flying out of one country, and as they were going through immigration, they said, oh, the people from your country, I won't name the country, the people from your country, they're very generous to their chiefs. Hint, hint, you know, I wink. They give gifts. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Now, thankfully, that person didn't give them anything. They knew exactly what it was. It was a request for a bribe. But they call it a gift, right? A rishwa, they said hadiyah, right? Uh, other transactions that are permissible. Hiring and renting. I will hire you to paint my house. Agreed upon price. You know, they could add terms. You know, it's permissible. Renting an object or a house, fine. Uh, bulk sales, right? So the restaurant owner can send a wholesa the wholesaler a payment for a bulk shipment of meat, right? You know, 500 pounds, 200 pounds, right? Wholesale, it's fine. Uh, the use of collateral is also permissible, right? Rahn. So a person who owes a debt can give the creditor something of value, an asset that the creditor would keep as his own if the debt is not paid at a certain point, according to terms they agree upon. And once the debt is repaid, they return that collateral item, right? That's a permissible transaction. Likewise, a deposit is a permissible transaction. However, it has to be given back if the terms are met. So you can, if you're renting a place, for instance, you can request a deposit. And the fuqaha say that 
if you take the deposit money and you invest it into something and make a profit from that investment, you get to keep the profit as long as you return the principal, the amount that was deposited when the terms are met, right? And if you, <laughs> if you get a deposit and you spend it or you invest it and you lose the money, guess what? You got to cough that money up some way to pay back that person when they meet the terms and you give them back their deposit. Uh, it is not permissible to take a deposit that's not refundable. And we'll talk about that in the next uh, couple of slides. Um, Non-refundable deposits are not allowed. Another thing that's permissible are endowments, awqaf. And I encourage you all to read more about the awqaf, the endowments and the history of the endowments. The awqaf in Islamic history are absolutely wondrous and an amazing example of altruism and barakah that continued generation after generation within the ummah. And there's a book that was recently uh, translated uh, called The Wonders of Awqaf. And the name, I know the, I know the translator, but the author's name escapes me at the moment. It's a really wonderful book. It talks about the history of Awqaf. You know, it really formed the backbone of society. You know, we didn't have welfare states, but we had Awqaf, right? One of my teachers told me that in Syria, back in the times of Imam Nawi, Ibn Qudama, and these other great Imams, they had in that time all sorts of different awqaf, including uh, just a waqf for making yogurt and giving it to madrasa students memorizing the Quran. So people invested money in into this endowment so the money is regenerating through the businesses but they are making yogurt and distributing it to madrasa students right something as simple as that and then these things uh, endured up until the post-colonial period when most of these awqaf were nationalized they were nationalized and eventually they disappeared but awqaf endowments is a kind of charity which is defined as an asset such as a property or land donated for a specific cause without an intent to take it back. There's different forms. Sometimes it's an investment of money that is regenerated or property or land. And the intention is that it stays like that is never going to be taken back. Once an endowment is made, it doesn't get transferred into a business for the person's profit. A masjid, for instance, remains as a waqf. It remains as a waqf for people ila yawm al-qiyamah, to the day of judgment. Ideally, that's how it's supposed to be. And there's some fiqh details about transferring of awqaf and stuff like that. But the point here is not to talk about awqaf in detail, but to show that it is a transaction and one of the permissible, indeed praiseworthy types. Now the forbidden transactions, uh, we said in the previous class that they all go down to three, right? So you have riba, you have gharar, and you have uh, haram things sold, right? Does that mean that there's only three 
haram forms of transaction? No, there are several, but they can almost all be boiled down into one of these three. But there's exceptions, obviously. Among the forbidden transactions are fraud, concealing the faults, right? Something has a tear, a defect, and the person conceals it from the buyer. Adulterating things. We, most of you know, you grew up probably with this story. The famous story of the girl whose family wanted her to add the water to the milk and mix the water in the milk in the time of Sayyidina Umar, right? Because Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, this is a famous story. It's one of those stories people hear, heard as children. I see some of you shaking your head. He's walking and when he's walking, people aren't doing this kind of fraud. He's away and the parents tell the child to pour the water into the milk and mix it before they sell it. This is called adulterating. It's watering down. And they said, don't worry child, Omar is not here. He's not looking. And the child said, what? Allah is looking. Allah is watching. Right? The Rabbu Umar, the Lord of Umar is watching. So that's adulterating things. Um, likewise, to overrate or to mislead any kind of deception like this. Uh, likewise, ihtikar or hoarding is prohibited. Uh, this is something that comes to mind. When you think of hoarding, what do you think of? Toilet paper, right? Who, who remembers 2020 toilet paper hoarding? Yeah. So what is hoarding? Does that mean you can't buy extra bags of rice? You can't buy extra bags of this and that? No. It doesn't mean you can't buy extra things and stock up. You can have stock. Hoarding here is to buy a large quantity of a staple item, what's a staple in that place, and to hold on to it until the demand increases, at which point you can mark up the price and make a profit. Why is there such a demand? Because of scarcity. And you played a role in the scarcity because you're hoarding so much. So you're taking advantage of that. That would be impermissible. You can do it for non-staple goods that people don't need in their daily life. Right? So if you want to buy, you know, if you want to go to Sam's Club and buy the whole, the whole crate full of rice, they have more. They'll bring it right back. You know, it's not, you're not going to cause a problem, inshallah. They artificially put limits anyway. So you can buy extra things. It's the artificial scarcity created by hoarding for the purpose of raising the price. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, another form of haram transaction is transacting with ignorant buyers. We mentioned this last week, how the hadith mentions it's prohibited for a person of the city to sell to a Bedou, right? Because the Bedouin, because he, grow, he lives in a very remote area, he's not aware of the prices, he's not aware of how these things work, and it's very easy to take advantage of him. The city dweller, therefore, doesn't go out to the Bedouins and sell to them because they have no way of comparing prices. And some of the fuqaha, they say this is applicable to foreigners coming to a, a land where they don't speak the languages and 
the prices are not clear and there's a potential of them being taken advantage, taking, taken advantage of. But that prohibition applies mostly to the person selling, doesn't it? They're the one who should not be selling to that person unless everything is clearly defined and they're not marking up the price, taking advantage of their ignorance. This is why price tags are beautiful because there's clarity. There's no, you don't have to wonder, right? Is he's charging me $5 for this and that person he's charging 50 cents? Am I getting ripped off? Price tags eliminate that. Uh, other things that are forbidden are invalid conditions. Now, the invalid condition is when you stipulate something in the sale that's invalid, that actually violates the purpose of the sale, or it doesn't violate the purpose of the sale, but it's insignificant to the sale, but invalid. What's an example? Uh, I put here in the slide one example. A person who sells cloth, right? The cloth is used to make shirts, pants, hats, this, that, the other. It can make all sorts of uh, articles of clothing. And you go to the cloth seller and you say, I want 100 yards of this cloth for X amount of dollars per yard. He says, good, fine. However, I will sell this to you, but you can only, what did I put here? Uh, you can only make pants. You can't make shirts with this. You can't make hats, you can't make jackets, you can't make anything but shirts. Is that a valid transaction? If you exchange money, it's valid, but that condition is invalid. You don't have to honor that because he can't stipulate what you can and cannot do with something like that. Likewise, a person sells you a home and they say to you, I'm going to sell you this home, but you have to live in it. You can't let anyone else live in it. Only you. So the transaction would be permitted, meaning you are, you are giving that person the money and they make, that's halal, but the, the stipulation is invalid and to make those kinds of stipulations is impermissible because they uh, contradict uh, the purpose of the sale, which is full ownership of the thing where you basically do with it what you want to do in the realm of permissibility. So if I own the home, I can live there, I can put my grandmother there, I can rent it out, it's mine. If I want to make it into a museum of bottle caps, I can do that because it's mine. If I buy the cloth, I can use it to make shirts and pants, I can use it to make a giant parachute for all I care because it's mine, I own it. It's not anyone's right as a part of the sale to stipulate what I do with it after the transaction is over. Does that make sense? Um, likewise, gambling. And you'd be surprised how rife gambling is among Muslims. How common it is among Muslims. Whether it is lotto tickets, people who go to the gas station and they're 
they can't resist the temptation to try their hand at striking, you know, getting some luck and getting millions of dollars. Or sports betting online or other forms of gambling. Now, is that a, are these transactions? Yes, there is an exchange of money, but it's haram because it is risking the wealth based on an act of luck, skill, or, or work. And that's the definition. Yeah, you're, you're paying for something that may or may not happen. It's a chance. You don't know. That would be haram. Yeah, that's different. So uh, wagers are different. Wagers are not gambling. So let's say, let's say you're a wrestler and you're going to wrestle Brother Amr. I come forward and I say, I'm going to put $500 on the table here. Whoever wins between the two of you gets to take the $500. No, I'm going to put maqsad in. Now, betting is haram, but this is, not, this is not betting, it's a wager. You're not paying any money to participate in this. You're not paying any money to participate. Both of you are wrestling each other, but neither of you are spending any money. I am bringing my money, putting it on the table, saying whoever of you wins will get to have this as a prize. And maybe... I get advertisers and they add money to the pool. You see what's, you see what's happening now. What about like the entry fee? Mm, now you're getting into different things. Let's, I don't want to make it murkier. But just the basic wager, you're not actually spending money, are you? So you're not putting your money in for something that may or may not happen. You just participate. Now, of course, you're going to spend your own money for your protein shakes and your gym time and training, but that's you. That's your own money you spend for your own development. You're not putting it into the actual competition, to the, to the actual transaction. So you're not betting your money. You're just investing that into yourself to make yourself better. You understand the difference? So wagers like that are generally permissible, and they're not the same thing as betting. So in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, you would, they would wager in camel racing or horse racing or wrestling and things like that. And there's details about how that would work and certain caveats and stipulations, but on, in its basic form, the wagering would be permissible and it would not be gambling because you are not putting your money into it. The moment you put your money into the pot, however, now it's gambling because you are putting money into something that may or may not happen for you. It is based on your skill, or luck, or chance, but you still may, you may win, you may lose. So that's gambling, but not if you keep your money out of it, all right? Um, two more things here. Among the forbidden transactions, uh, non-refundable deposits, which we mentioned earlier, uh, a deposit one makes towards a purchase. Uh, but if the person cancels the sale, he loses the deposit. So let's say... <laughs> is that how they work, huh? I, yeah, I've never... 
I've never had to cancel a flight in my life. Yeah. Yeah. But you may be able to get on the phone if you're patient enough and just talk them to, to a good deal and avoid all of that. I don't know, yeah. But in principle, yeah. If the condition is, you know, here's item A, give me $500 now and you can come back later. But if you decide you don't want it, I keep the $500. Hmm. Not permissible. You cannot take a deposit with, in, with those kind of terms. The deposit you can take is the deposit that gets returned to the depositor when they fulfill the conditions, right? But not like this. Um, lastly, purchasing stolen goods. If a person knows they're stolen, then the purchase is batil, it's invalid, facit. And the goods have to be returned to the owner. But what if the purchaser didn't know the things were stolen? You just couldn't resist that deal. You know, the guy offer you that Rolex watch. Maybe in the back of your mind you thought, maybe this is questionable. Maybe you genuinely believe that it's not stolen. But then you found out it's stolen. You have the watch now, and you paid your hard-earned money for this watch. What do you do now? The fuqaha say that if you didn't know that it was stolen, and then you come to know it's stolen, you have to return to the rightful owner. What about your money? You got to go seek compensation from the one who sold it to you. You got to demand your money back because it's your money. They took it unlawfully. Is that going to happen? Unlikely. You may not ever see that person again. But as a technical thing, this is what it is, right? Okay, so these are just general forbidden transactions, all of these different things. And this is not exhaustive. There's other forms, obviously. But having covered these, we're now able to focus... Oh, I forgot a couple. Yeah, giving, uh, gift giving without transfer of ownership. Um, I forgot these two. If you give a gift and you don't transfer the ownership, that's not permissible. If, it the, if it's a child and you give the child a gift of, say, $1,000, but they're three years old, like it's a gift, but they can't use that money, you keep that, but once they reach the age of maturity to handle the money, you have to give it to them. But I can't, you can't say to someone who's an adult, uh, I'm going to give you this car. This car... I'm giving it to you now, it's yours, but you can't use it until I'm dead. That's not permissible. This is called Nuhul, and it's not permissible because it blurs the lines of ownership. Who actually owns it? If person A gave it to person B as a gift, doesn't it belong to person B? Yes. But if person A says he can't use it until he dies, does person A own it or person B own it? It's because it blurs the lines of ownership and can create potential conflict. That will be impermissible. The only exception is if it's gift, a gift to a child who lacks discernment for something, right? Money, a car. Once that child reaches the age of discernment, it's transferred to them. 
So they're only holding it until that time. Um, the other haram, trans, haram uh, transaction, the last one here, is price fixing. Price fixing. So this means that it's haram for the ruler to demand that a product be sold for a certain price or that sellers are not allowed to raise or lower their prices as they see fit. Like Islam, we're not communist out here, you know? We're not Marxist, we're not socialist. Some people, you know, they say Islam is at root social. No, it's not. It's not at all. We're not uh, bloodthirsty capitalists either, right? Using these terms, capitalism, socialism, communism, they're all isms, so we don't embrace an ism. But on the scale, if we're between Marxist uh, theory, you know, Marxist uh, economics and free market economics, where does the bulk of Islamic law lie on those two sides? It's free market. It's free market, which means that it's not allowed for the ruler to say you have to sell your eggs at a certain price, a fixed price. And that actually causes things to increase at the end of the day because then it's, it trickles down from the, the producers then switch to something else because they're not making a profit and it becomes more expensive for them to run their farms. They switch to something else and then that it becomes a huge problem. So price fixing is not allowed in Islam like this. There is a basic free market economy. And that's all I'll say on that matter for right now. These are just general things that are forbidden. Having covered all of these, we now open, we, we kind of clear the way for talking about the, th the two main areas of haram transactions that are surrounding us in this society and indeed the world. And that is gharar transactions and riba. Gharar is all around us. It's very, very hard to avoid in all of its forms. Some forms are absolutely for forbidden. Some forms are very minor and unavoidable and permissible. There are some details in between we have to discuss. And riba we have to also discuss. And from there we branch out into the kind of the details about those two things as we see them in the world around us. So we'll stop here inshallah. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions about anything? Can what? Collateral items be sold? Well, if you go back to the slide here, the, the use of collateral, right? If the ownership transfers to you, it's yours to do what you want. The question is the ownership. Has the ownership transferred to you? If it has, then it's yours. Yeah. I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, is the, there's a question of is it a best practice? Is it a good practice to do? 
Well, I think the same, what we said about the, the fiqh of marriage can be said here too. That the fiqh of marriage, the rights and responsibilities is defining bare minimums. It's not defining what is always going to be the best possible thing in that moment. So if the transfer of ownership has passed on to you and it's legitimately yours, but it came through that means of this collateral, if you think that it's taking advantage of that person's uh, unfortunate circumstances and you don't want to do that, well, it's up to you. But from a very technical fiqh standpoint, because you have ownership, there's nothing immoral in you doing with it what you please, as long as that thing is halal. Yeah. Yeah. Is it something if you want to address later, that's fine. Yeah, this is this is that area we spoke about last week. The, yeah, so the brother's asking about the issue of car leases. And this is one of the areas we mentioned last week where you have the fiqh and you have the fact. And you have to know the fiqh and the details concerning the lease and how it works uh, before you can make uh, a judgment. So it's definitely something to talk about, inshallah. Most of the leases, slip in the interest inside and they make it as a package. Yeah, and there's also ways around that, uh, depending on who you deal with, and you can work around it. Sometimes that involves you paying a little bit more out of pocket in order to avoid that. But yeah, you're right. Any other questions? So, mashallah, may Allah reward you for your patience. This is not the, you know, exciting stuff, but it's something, it's all necessary. Yeah, that's a very common question. Is it haram to work as a cashier at a place that sells haram? So when we talk about riba in the coming classes and gharar, we also talk about that third thing. What's the third thing we said? Selling or you know, selling things that are haram. Transacting, selling things that are haram. The three main haram transactions uh, outside of these types. Riba, gharar, and selling haram objects. So as we talk about riba and gharar, we will also talk about selling haram objects and we'll go into the details about the uh, question of working in a place that has halal and haram where they're mixed. It's not 100% haram like a liquor store, but it's not 100% halal either, right? So there's, there's certain details in that question that need to be explored independently. Inshallah, we endeavor to do that, inshallah. Another question that I have is, uh, uh, the example that you gave where you, a seller cannot stipulate uh, a condition that I'm selling a cloth, but you're gonna only make pants out of it. Mm -hmm. What if, if you're selling to somebody whose primary business is not, let's say, making liquor or wine, but they could use the raw material that you're selling to them that so could you stipulate that in that contract that you, you are not going to make liquor out of it or wine out of it for example hmm you mean like a person selling grapes yep. yeah I, I haven't heard 
it put in that way where a person would add in stipulations to go on that person's word that they wouldn't use it for a haram purpose like so the person's coming to buy grapes and they work for a wine company would you take them at their word if they said oh we're just going to use the grapes to make raisins because we're also going to branch out and make a raisin bran well if let's say if their primary business is not liquor but they do have let's say like they have many divisions mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I hesitate to answer that question simply because there seems to be certain variables that need to be considered. If, if the person buying the product makes wine, but you know they're using... Uh, we have to forget the grapes example because that's very explicit. But let's just say they own a company that makes wine and they want to purchase something from you. If that thing is used directly in the process to manufacture it, there's a huge problem with selling this. But if you're selling something that's not used at all in that process, and they're representing that company, it's a transaction that would be permissible on the surface. Let's say they're just buying tablecloths for their, for their cafeteria, you know? I mean, Sure, eth ethically there's an issue here dealing with that kind of company perhaps, but that transaction in itself, something halal being sold for a halal purpose, even if they themselves are involved in something haram. Because you're not required, I mean in this case you would know, but you're not required to ascertain everyone's source of income and what they're going to do with it. You, you have to base it off of reasonable certainty, not just you don't speculate, okay, this person is a non-Muslim, that means they must eat pork. Therefore, I can't sell this thermometer because they're going to use it to, you know, for their, for their Christmas ham. You don't need to go into that. It has to be reasonably sure that you're, they're going to use it for haram. But they're also, they're also disbelievers. What's a greater sin than shirk? Still a valid transaction. And it's one thing if you know they're buying the house to set up a business that is haram. It's another thing if you're just living in it and they happen to do haram things while living in it. If they do that, it's not even your job to pry. Yeah. Inshallah. So next week we go straight into the riba and gharar. Jazakumullah wa na khairan wa salamu alaykum.